0: Morning. Good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, "'and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. "'And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines "'and struck them as far as below beth "'Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen "'and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, "Till now the Lord has helped us.' "'So the Philistines were subdued "'and did not again enter the territory of Israel. "'And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel.' The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Our holy triune God, you have given us your word that we might be made wise unto salvation. It is indeed sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing between joint and marrow. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us by your spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you more clearly today, and that this knowledge would result not in merely facts that we know, but instead that you would change our hearts evermore into conformity of the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. When World War II opened and made its way to the shores of North Africa, a young British citizen was living in East Africa, and he answered Britain's call to arms. He went off and became a pilot in the Royal Air Force. And he was hoping as a tall young man that he would be assigned to fly bombers, where he'd have a little bit of space to stretch out his legs, but instead he was put in as a fighter pilot. And you can imagine his dismay when facing the modern, terrifying Luftwaffe, he was assigned to fly an outdated biplane called a Gloucester Gladiator. Well, he left his training squadron with directions to go link up with his combat squadron in North Africa, And along the way, he realized that the directions seemed to be somewhat lacking, and he was running out of fuel, and there was nowhere safe to put the plane down. He crash-landed in the rocks in North African desert and awoke in a hospital in Alexandria quite a while later. He had been sent between British and German lines inadvertently and had been severely injured in the crash as he had been laying there outside of his plane, hearing the machine guns cook off their rounds. He hadn't realized the full extent of the pain that he was going to be in, but when he woke up, he was startled to find that he couldn't actually see anymore. He had gone completely blind, and the doctors couldn't tell, because of the fractures to his skull, whether he would be able to see again until the swelling went down. Well, he began to become used to living in this type of darkness, of not being able to see where he was going, not being able to move or do anything for himself. Until one day, as a nurse was tending to his face, he saw this glimmer of light that broke through. And it was the light reflecting off of her collar insignia. He thought at first that it was an angel. But it forever changed the way he saw things. It changed the way he saw everything to remember what it was like to regain sight. And you might remember some of the books that this man went on to write because he was Roald Dahl, And he became a famous children's author. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Israel is in a similar position at the start of the story. They have, after all of the book of Judges, gotten worse and worse and worse. They've turned farther and farther away from the Lord. And now, at the beginning of chapter 7 here, it's been 20 years since they had the Ark of the Covenant. They had taken it into battle against the Philistines as a sort of a good luck charm, thinking that if they just brought the Ark with them, they would be victorious, that they could manipulate God somehow in this way. And the Lord had judged them harshly. And they had lost the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant had afflicted the Philistines, and so they, they wanted to get rid of it. And they tried to send it back, but there was nowhere to send it. And so it was at kiriath Jerem for 20 years. And you have a 20-year pause until this story begins. And now, with the threat of a Philistine invasion facing them, the Israelites begin to see that first glimmer of light again. It begins to break through, and they realize just how far they've departed from the Lord. And so this takes us to our first section of the text here in verses 3 through 6, where Samuel appears. And Samuel, for whom the book is named, has been absent from the story for a while, We left off with Samuel, and he was a young boy training in the tabernacle at the feet of Eli, the high priest. But now, after this time has passed, Samuel is a young man. He's been trained as a priest. And we can see that he is the last judge of Israel before they would enter into their theocracy with Saul. And so Israel comes to Samuel, and they've lamented after the Lord. They've been lamenting after God because they know they've been worshiping idols. And their lament is is grounded. They know the law. They know the law that was given to Moses. This was what they were raised with. They knew Deuteronomy 17 said that an individual Israelite who committed idolatry must be put to death. That this was how evil was to be purged from amongst the people of Israel. That this was the expectation that the land would be kept pure. But what do they do If the entire country has turned aside from the Lord, what do you do then? What offering does God prescribe for this? Well, you could search through the Old Testament and you won't find one. There is no offering for this type of turning away from the Lord. In fact, what you do find is the covenant curses that God has given through Moses in Deuteronomy 28. And this is, I believe, particularly in mind for the Israelites facing the threat of the Philistines. Because Deuteronomy 28 says that if you violate the covenant, then you will go into battle one way, and you'll be driven out from before your enemies seven ways. You'll be utterly destroyed. You'll be defeated because you've broken the covenant. And this is doubtless what's in mind for Israel. They know they've broken the covenant. They've lamented after the Lord, and they know the consequence is this complete and utter destruction. And so they turn to Samuel. And Samuel tells them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, if this is actually what you want, and he gives them three things, they must put away the idols from among them, they must direct their heart to the Lord, and they must serve him only. These three commands that Samuel gives. And you see in these commands two external visible commands kind of sandwiching the middle command here. You have this command to put away the idols. And of course, in the ancient Near East, you have these idols that are actual household idols that you can carry around with you. And you can set them down and see them and control them and tell them what to do for you. And they, they sit there and they're dumb and mute. And this is much of, the, much of what the actual prophets say is, is against these types of idols. But putting away the idols is something visible. This isn't put them in your footlocker and save them for a rainy day. That's not what Samuel says. He says, put them away from you, cast them out, get rid of them from among you. There is no place for idolatry in the people of God, Samuel tells them. And this last command, serve the Lord only. Well, that's also very visible. That's very obvious. There was instituted worship that was... That was required to be observed. You might think of the purification rituals that would have been very obvious, all tied to Israel's identity of being the place where God was dwelling. But what of this central command? What of this one that's kind of the focal point of the other two? Direct your heart to the Lord. You see, this one is much harder to see. This one is an internal command. But this this sense of directing isn't merely a sense of pointing. This isn't merely remember the Lord. This isn't merely think about God. This is anchor your heart, all of your being. Anchor it upon the Lord only. Where do you put your trust, Samuel says to Israel? Only in the Lord. That is a little bit harder to see. And yet, it's it's somewhat surprising, perhaps, if you were an Israelite listening to this, that what Samuel didn't say was, go into battle and see what happens, because he could have been entirely justified in saying that. That was what the covenant curses said, but instead, he reveals to them more and more the nature of God's mercy, that God is who he actually said he is to Moses when he revealed himself and said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful. This is what grounds Samuel's response to Israel. Not the worst case scenario, but the best case scenario of being the people of God. Being the people upon whom the Lord loves to show mercy. Well, how does Israel respond to this? Well, right away, we see in verse 4 that the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth. That's command number one. And they serve the Lord only. That's command number three. Where's command number two? Where is this directing of the heart? Well, they responded in faith, evidently. And and Samuel, moreover, tells them to go and gather at Mizpah. And Mizpah will become important later as you read through 1 Samuel because this is where Israel gathers to anoint Saul king. This becomes a major place. And in, in later king's times, this will become a fortified town. But at this time in Israel's history, it's just a place that you can go to gather everybody together. And if you think of it, Israel's actually a lot like California in the geography. You have the ocean, you have the sea coming up to the side of Israel, like the ocean comes up to California. And then you have the coastal plain, and that's where the Philistines lived. And then you have the rough terrain that becomes complex, and that's where Israel was. And then you go down into the Dead Sea. And so this low gland that comes up into the highland and then comes down a little bit, as you're starting to come back down, heading east... That's where Mizpah is. It's below the high ground. It's opposite of the mountains from where the Philistines are. And it seems like a bit odd of a place to command all of Israel to gather because it's not particularly defensible. But they respond in faith. They go and they gather at Mizpah. And here you see the first inkling of that second command. They draw out water and they pour it out and they fast. They're trying to show their affliction over their sin. Not in a sense of earning God's favor, as if these things are the substance, but in the sense of true repentance over sin. And they fast and they confess their sin corporately and honestly. They have sinned before the Lord. And so, if you were living in Israel at this time, you might think now is the time for blessing. Samuel said, put away the idols, direct our heart to the Lord, and serve him only and we will be delivered from the hands of the Philistines. So therefore, the Philistines must be about to be defeated. That must be what's happening. Well, we see that this isn't quite how it goes down. And we turn to verse 7, and we look at verses 7 through 11 in our second main section of the text. You see this series of rapid scene shifts, as if it was a Hollywood film. We've been looking at Israel up to this point, and suddenly now in verse 7... We go and visit the Philistines, and we see inside the tent of the Philistine commander, and you can practically see the joy on his face when the messenger, who's been spying out the land of Israel, comes running back down the mountain slopes and tells him they're all gathered together at Mizpah. Everybody's there. You see, the Philistine commander would have understood the significance of this. Because now the Israelites have given away the high ground. They've given away any defensible position and they've all massed together at Mizpah. Even more than that, the Philistines are attacking from the west. They could time their attack at night and put the sun in the eyes of their enemies. They can put their archers on the high ground and outrange them. There is no hope now. The Philistine commander must have been gleeful. He must have realized that everything was going his way now. And so they turned to attack the Israelites. And this is all rolled up in just that short phrase, they went up against Israel. But when the people of Israel, who also had lookouts, heard of this, because it does take a little while to get an army on the march, they knew this was coming. The Israelite messengers would have come back and said, the Philistines are coming. What is the response? What's the right response to this? How do you handle it? if you're told that that death is approaching you, I think the Israelites respond in a way that makes a lot of sense. They were afraid of the Philistines. And this is the only chance we get to see into their emotional life here. They're afraid. You have to think that throughout the time of the judges, Israel has been more and more disarmed as the Philistines get more and more power, as, as enemies from around them start to take little bits of land as they start to oppress the Israelites a little bit more, and now this great army has gathered against them. This thing that was the worst-case scenario for them at the beginning of this story is actually happening now. Where is their faith? Where, where is their heart? Well, We see that in the very next verse, because the people of Israel cry, say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God from us that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. And and we see here a shift in the way the Israelites are thinking. Because it's not just the Lord. It's the Lord, our God. Who had they been serving at the beginning? But these false idols. And they remember now that the Lord is their God. He's not some abstract concept. He's their God. And they turn to him for their deliverance. And so Samuel takes this nursing lamb and offers as a burnt offering to the Lord. And this isn't an offering for guilt or for sin. This is a free will offering. This is what the Israelites should have been doing. This is how the worship of God should have been led. This is what the man of God ought to have done. And he cries out to the Lord for Israel. And we see that Israel needed Samuel. They needed a mediator. They had no standing before the Lord to approach his throne. They had no standing individually now to come before him without a mediator. But their mediator is a good mediator. And he offers this burnt offering to the Lord, and he behaves as he ought to have behaved. It's a little bit like when you leave the chiropractor and suddenly everything's back in place. This is what was supposed to have been going on with the judges, And then we have the major shift of the story. There in verse 9, the Lord, who up until this point has been the object of all the action. People have been talking about the Lord. They've been serving false gods. They've turned back to the Lord. But now, in verse 9, the Lord becomes the subject of the verbs. And he responds in power. He answers them. And what does this answer look like? But what we see in verse 10 That now this God who has actually spoken speaks against the Philistines. And as the Philistines are drawing near, and you can imagine it's not too hard to see, standing at Mizpah looking up at the dusty slopes of the mountains that look an awful lot like the mountains we have here, and the Philistines coming over the crest and coming down. And you can imagine the fear and the trepidation, but that still confidence that you will still trust in the Lord, and then the Lord answers, and the Lord thunders against the Philistines. And there's even just this little bit of irony that the Israelites wouldn't have missed, because they'd been serving Baal at the start of this, this false god. We still have relief carvings of cultures that worshiped Baal, and he's depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand because he's the storm god of the ancient Near Eastern Pantheon. But Baal could do nothing, because Baal is not real. But Yahweh thundered against the Philistines, and Yahweh delivered them. And so complete was this deliverance, was that the Philistines were thrown into confusion in the face of this mighty thundering voice of the Lord. They don't know what to do. They have every tactical advantage, but they are utterly undone. And they turn and they run back. And I don't know if you like to run. I do not. But they ran two miles, if you look at a map, from where Mizpah is to Bethkar, two miles uphill with a pack of angry Israelites chasing them. That can't be a fun time. They were terrified. The Lord had answered Israel in a powerful way. And now we see, far from the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28, the covenant blessings, that Israel will go into battle one way, their enemies will come against them from one way, and their enemies will be driven out seven ways from before them. And the Lord is pleased to smile upon his people and to deliver them from their great trial. And you might think, if you were an Israelite, that now this is perhaps the end of the story. Perhaps this is it. We did what God said to do. God said what He said He would do. But you'll notice, sharp eyed viewers will note, that chapter 7 keeps going a little bit. And we see that God's promises are not a limitation on His goodness poured out on His people. Because Samuel, right away, in the very next verse, in verse 12, takes a stone and sets it up, this big rock along this well-traveled road between Mizpah and Shen, a kind of I-5 of ancient Israel. And he sets a big rock next to it, and he calls it Ebenezer. And if you're reading in the ESV, you might see its footnoted that it means stone of help. That's literally what the word means. Eben is stone, and Edzer is help. It's stone of help. And he sets this up to remind Israel, because Israel, like us, is often forgetful. And the moment of seeing God's power is vivid and strong, and then years pass, and memories fade, and people forget the great deliverance that they'd received from the Lord. But Samuel knows this, and he sets this rock up, and he says, this is the stone of help. And every time you and your family go between Mizpah and Shen, your kids are going to ask, Dad, what's that rock there that doesn't fit? Why is there a big stone here? And you'll remember, God has delivered us. It's by God's deliverance alone that we are still here. And he says that until now, the Lord has helped us. But beyond even that, beyond that answer the Lord had promised, the text goes further, and the Philistines were subdued. And they don't again enter into the land of Israel. This was beyond what God had promised in verse 3. And beyond that, the, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Ekron to Gath, down in the Philistine coastal plain that were in the assigned allotment of one of the tribes of Israel, those are returned to Israel. That wasn't in the bargain. And beyond even that, the Amorites, who weren't part of the bargain at all. There's peace with the Amorites, too. And we see blessing after blessing after blessing being poured out upon God's people here. And then beyond even that, we have Samuel now judging Israel. You might remember Eli dies when he hears the news of his son's wickedness. This is when they lost the ark. Israel wasn't used to having good leadership at this point. But here they have Samuel, this man of God who not only sits in one place like Eli had done, but goes from village to village to village, making a circuit year by year to ensure that the people of Israel are governed well. And he returns to his home and judges Israel there, and he even goes so far as to build an altar to the Lord so that right worship of the Lord can be done. They finally have everything put back in place as it should have been. And so we have to ask, why is this story here? Why is this story given to us, New Covenant Christian believers? Why did God tell us that this is necessary for us to know? This story of a battle 3,000 years ago, in between a period of judges and a period of kings in Israel's history, in this land far away from us, well... It's pretty plain if you look at the commands at the very beginning. How does Samuel respond to the people who want to return to the Lord? It sounds an awful lot like what our Lord said at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew, chapter 4, where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance and faith are the same commands that have been given to God's people. Turn away from sin and turn to the Lord. We might see this also in the book of James where he exhorts his listeners to establish their hearts upon the Lord. This is the same God that we serve. This is the same exhortation that he gives to us. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And why can we do this? What grounds do we have to turn in repentance and faith to God. Israel needed Samuel to mediate for them under their administration as, as they needed this priestly class. They needed Samuel to mediate, but what does 1 Timothy 2.5 tell us? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he is interceding for you, believer, even now before the throne of grace. See, Samuel was like a new and improved Moses, but he wasn't the fulfillment of the promises. He still pointed the way forward. He still showed us a little bit of what this Messiah would look like, though imperfectly. But we know the name of our Redeemer. We know the Lord Jesus Christ and the victory that he won. As great as the victory over the Philistines was, is nothing to the victory that Christ won at Calvary for you. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who loves you so much that he poured out his own blood on the cross for you. What good news is this? You know the word gospel comes from the sense of the good news that you get in the aftermath of a battle. And you can imagine the good news coming back to Israel. When all those women and children who had been sitting there waiting to see what would happen to their husbands in this battle hear the good news that it's going to be okay. How much greater is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have in his blood? Brothers and sisters, there's another aspect of the story, though, because the story didn't end in verse 6. we see that even when Israel turned away from their idols, which is the same call given to us, the Philistines still came. And the Lord still delivered them, but the fear was still there for the Israelites. They were still given this trial. Is God petty to do this for them? No. Why is it that James can open his epistle and say that, in, that, that trials produce steadfastness in you? Because this is how God chooses to grow and mature his people. You might think of 1 Peter 4.12, where Peter also exhorts his audience, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes your way, as if something strange were happening to you to test you, but rejoice Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, how do you rejoice? How do you rejoice that you suffer as a Christian? You rejoice because you share in Christ's sufferings. You rejoice that God loves you enough to not be content to leave you as a child, as an infant in the faith, but to grow you into gospel maturity. And it's not a comfortable process but it is a good process. And it's the way that God shows his love to his people so that when you talk to someone who's walked with the Lord for for decades and decades of life, and they just seem like they can't be shaken, it's because things have tried to shake them. And they've seen time and again the goodness and the mercy of the Lord poured out upon them. You see, this is the kind of testing that produces the faith that is commended throughout Scripture. The faith that the Israelites had when the Philistines came against them is the same as the faith of Job. When his counselors tell them, just just give up. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is biblical faith. It's the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in Daniel, when they face Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, who is so great that he can deliver you from me? And they say, our God can, and even if he doesn't, we won't worship you. You see, we turn to a rock that cannot be shaken. We turn... To the Lord Jesus Christ, who has won once and for all the victory for us. And perhaps you're doubting this morning. Perhaps you're saying, that's all fine and good, but you don't know what I've done. How often does God tell us to forgive each other? When the disciples asked Jesus this, it wasn't once or twice. Some you might say seventy seven. Seven times, seventy times. This abundance of times. And it's not as if you keep track on an abacus now. I forgave you for this once and again and again. But this shows us that God loves to forgive his people. Turn to the Lord, and there is forgiveness greater than your debt. It's like lighting a match and being put out by the ocean. There's no comparison. Turn back to the Lord, because our Redeemer lives. Be of good faith, because our God answers and fulfills his promises. And so I would ask, have you seen your sin? And if you have, have you turned to Christ? And if you have, do you trust in Christ? Are you continuing day by day to turn in repentance and faith to the one person who can actually deliver you. See, we never outgrow our need for this. We never outgrow our need to be reminded that Jesus is our Lord. And when trials assail us, we don't say, I can't believe this is happening. When you get the worst news you can get, you don't say, how could this happen to me? I've done everything right. You turn to the Lord and say, give me the strength to get through this, Lord. There's the old adage that calm seas never made a good sailor. And Spurgeon famously said that he has loved, learned to kiss the wave that cast him upon the rock of ages. You see, this same God who delivered Israel thousands of years ago is the same God who delivered you. And it wasn't harder for him to deliver you than for them. Because this God does not change. This God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So where is your heart? Turn to the Lord. Be of good cheer, confident in the completed work of Christ, Christian. Knowing that you are secure in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us more than we could have asked or imagined. We thank you that you treat us not according to what we deserve, but according to your mercy. And so, O Lord, we ask that you would give us confidence that we would boldly live for Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.